This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, and with me, Cam Ruslan, today, uh, we have the returns of, they both want to just say that they are consultants, and I'm not really <laughs> sure what that means. But uh, uh, he has the added advantage also of being um, the most techie person I know, um, which, which doesn't say much, actually, is uh, Matt Armitage. Hi, Cam. Nice to be here. Uh, great to have you back. And uh, he's a consultant, and he works for Naughty Labs. Um, <laughs> they're not called that. It's called Nort Labs. Uh, Onkar Jin. Hello. Good to be back. You really should rename yourselves as Naughty Labs, though. It's so much more interesting. And uh, our three topics this week are, topic number one is somebody wrote a letter, and it got delivered 100 years later. It, it just arrived. Mm-hmm. That's topic number one. <laughs> topic number two is the sense of taste. And finally, topic number three is Matt is a de-influencer. So uh, with topic number one, I, I've described it all, haven't I, uh, uh, Kajin? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was just reading in The Guardian um, today, actually, um, about how a letter that was um, sent off in 1916 was just delivered in London uh, more than 100 years later. Um, I mean, it's amazing. And, and what the letter kind of says is that I mean, the, the, the beginning line of the letter is, My dear Katie, will you lend me your aid? I'm feeling quite ashamed of myself after saying what I did at the circle. And I'm like, oh my, this is some, hot, you know, kind of uh, British elite uh, kind of uh, controversy going on here. Some kind of social faux pas that perhaps never got that apology in the end, a <laughs> hundred years later. But, um, uh, j- j- but just to clarify, so it got sent, Ultimately, to the, the the address that was on the letter. Yes, yes, it was the but, same address. But the the people who lived in the house now are not related to. No, not those at all. Occupants. Yeah, so so this guy had held on, uh, had received this letter two years ago, and was like, "Oh, wait, that's King George the Fifth on the stamp. Um, that can't be like twenty. That's." 1916, not 2016. And he then held on to the letter without opening it for two years, just in case the owner came back. Mm. Um, and two years later, he decided to open it and take a look what was inside. And, and uh, it's um, it's a beautiful chance to, to, to have a window into a, a previous age. By the way, the year 1916, that was right in the middle of the First World War. Yeah. Where, where you know, thousands were dying every day. Um and I don't know if the letter made reference to oh, and the war is really bad. Didn't mention it at all. Eh? No, no, not at all. And well, he did say he was feeling a bit unwell. Um, and I'm like, oh, hmm, flu, perhaps. Mm, mm. <laughs> yes. So you were saying you were saying that also it brings up the idea of the time capsule. The- yes, um, I mean, you know, I, I was thinking about this, right? Um, you know, the idea of the ca- time capsule, the idea of you know, sending a letter to yourself and perhaps opening it only like five or ten years later. And, and uh, I mean, for example, like Mahathir, he, you know, that opening kind of Putrajaya and, and, and all that, he, he put in a capsule and he said, oh, you know, when Wawasan 2020 has come to fruition, we'll open it and dig it up and open it and all reminisce on ho, 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 ha, ha, ha. Um, obviously, um, they haven't even dug up the time capsule as far as I know. So, uh, but I think it does bring up a question of, you know, reminiscing, um, reflection, and the value of that time lag um, in, in something, which is perhaps something uh, yeah. difficult. Matt, Matt have you ever come across uh, in your life instances? 
you know, you, you have that thing when you're a, a, a kid of you read all the pirate stories and you uh, <laughs> have the whole message in a bottle thing and you go through that phase of, oh, if I, you know, if I put a, a, a note in a river and put it in a bottle and will somebody, somebody find it and, you know, will it, will it go upstream? But I think it's, it's not just about the, I think it's not just about the, the reminiscence aspect. It's also mm -hmm. about the societal aspect because i was just thinking about um terry pratchett's books mm. and uh, the the book going postal which is about reviving the post office and they actually get to delivering letters that had just been moldering and accumulating in the post office for decades and decades and you have that as well with the the, the kevin costner movie yeah uh, the postman the postman yeah um this idea that delivering letters to people is this way of actually binding society together mm. and giving people this kind of a sense of belonging and this kind of sort of co-ownership of the, the the places they they live in so the fact that somebody bothered to deliver this a hundred years later um yes of course you you have all of the discussions about why it got lost and what happened to it and, and where it was but still the fact that it made its way into a mailbag and it was delivered to if not the address that was on the envelope but to what was standing uh where the, the that demolished building now was just kind of shows you the power that delivering letters actually has you know mm. we kind of forget that i think with um email and digital communications because it it is so fast but you can just see the the kind of power um and the sense of cohesion that comes from things like this i think mm -hmm. i i've actually had many many moments like this because i uh do quite a lot of research in archives mm. and so i'm constantly coming across time capsules um mm in that I know that I'm reading pieces of paper like nobody has read. <laughs> uh, why would they? And uh, and then getting a sense of the personality of the people and trying to decipher their handwriting. But but also uh, on one instance, when I was living in London, I, I, I had a job to clean a house. And it was a big old house in the East End of London. And whilst I was cleaning, it was, it was completely empty. I found a whole bunch of uh, letters and uh, photographs. And photographs of this, this uh, Jewish family that used to live there, like, you know, more than 100 years before. And I was able at one point, there were these photographs of these two boys smiling, arms around each other. And I, I realized I could actually I could actually line up the photograph with a particular brick wall. Mm. Um, and there they were right in front of me. <laughs> and lock, a lock of hair and, and all these things. Because it was a Jewish family as well. I mean, they uh, they themselves wouldn't have experienced the devastation of the Holocaust, but they would have had family mm. that would have been wiped out. And, um, but they, I, I could, if somebody said, why don't you go and try and find them? I could have tried to track them down. I didn't do that. But I mean, I love, I love that kind of thing. Yeah. But Matt, I mean, you and I, we, we grew up in England. Um, the TV show, Blue Peter for children. Yes. They were constantly burying time capsules. And yeah, they were. It was a bit of an obsession, I think. Yeah, I mean, for us growing up in the seventies and stuff, it was always time capsules. But but, Kajin, would you? Uh, you told me earlier that you you actually did write a letter to yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, when I was in secondary school, um, a teacher of mine 
she she got the class the whole class to you know oh imagine yourself in the future and write a letter to your future self and what she did was she you know it was an assignment she kept it she graded us and amazingly five years later after we had graduated she sent it all and I I mean that, that I was just thought this is incredible I mean of course I I, I had I cringed quite a bit when I saw what I had read. <laughs> Uh, but also, I, I couldn't help but feel, oh my, I think younger me would have been sorely disappointed. By by older you? By by older me, I think I was Why? like, oh. Because you me didn't was, travel was, on a jet pack or something? No, no, younger me was was like, oh, you're going to save, uh, do great things. And I think you <laughs> should, uh, um, um, you know, uh, uh, change the politics of the country and all that. I'm like, oh my goodness. Really? But you're a consultant. That's like I know. I've uh, sold my soul to the corporate gods. So, uh, to M- Matt, you, um, you, when was the last time you wrote a letter? I'm trying to think. I genuinely, I can't remember. I mean, it would be. I mean, it would be in decades. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It would yeah. be in decades, and that I think is also one of the the issues. I mean, one of the things that I've I've covered on some of the Matt's plane shows is uh you know there's a generation now that finds it very hard to write with the pen Mm -hmm. and pencil uh they can type you know they can they can type fluidly from a a very very young age but cursive is is kind of dying out people are not joining up letters anymore because they write so infrequently that most people just print Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I we must move on. But I I used to write a lot of letters, and they were brilliant letters. They were they were they, they should be like the collected <laughs> letters of. They were hilarious and insightful and everything. And I used to write them to one person in particular. Eventually, I went to visit him. He lived in Los Angeles, and and he was in his office in Los Angeles, and he was taking he was clearing up, and he was taking all my letters and throwing them in the bin in oh front my of God. me. And I was like, "What the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Is this what you always do to my letters? They're hilarious." <laughs> <laughs> um anyway so uh kajin you're gonna you're gonna do a time capsule um well i i don't do time capsules but what i do um is um every month i'll go to mcorp mall uh where the free market is <laughs> oh yeah and oh well it's time capsule galore there but yeah. and and a kind of hobby of my well i don't know if it, it's a bit of a morbid hobby but i collect everything that i can find from the year 1969 Oh, you know, wow. because of the the significance oh, wow. to to Malaysia's history, and oh. I've collected quite a few letters that have, like, you know, I have the the letter of a father to a son, written on the fourteenth of May, nineteen sixty nine, and there's there's like no mention. It's life as usual. Oh, son, can you please uh, mail me ten ringgit in stamps uh, to, to pay for the donation for the surau in KL? And I'm like, hmm, okay. What an amazing collection. That's that's fantastic. Next time you're on, we're gonna to have to talk about that. Okay, yeah. great. More okay. than happy to. Yeah, that's a that's a really wonderful thing to collect. Okay, so uh, we move on though. Um, topic number two, which is the sense of smell, because I had COVID last week. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't great, but uh, I'm very brave, so you know, stay stay with <laughs> no, no problem. No, thank you. And um, and amongst that, I lost my sense of taste, and it was very shocking to lose my sense of taste it never happened to me before so i'm chomping on food 
I, I mean, I can't even call it food anymore. It's like it it's this alien substance. Soil and green. <laughs> kind of. And and if anything, I suddenly found myself actually enjoying, if that's the right word, things that I hadn't enjoyed before, like beans, because they had a crunch, they had a texture, they had no taste, but at oh. least there was some kind of experience in my mouth. Um, but it struck me as I was chomping on on stuff that I couldn't taste, just how important the sense of taste must be, have been in the history of humankind. Mm. Because humans have, you know, obviously covered the entire globe and gone in, at some point, gone into a new area where the way they would have experienced the land would have been, the, the most real way to experience it would be to, to eat it mm. by discovering new tastes. And some would have killed them, but some would have been delicious. Or they would have just, that particular culture would have decided it is delicious. And others would have said, oh, that's disgusting. Um, but also uh, Asia, South, well, the whole of Asia, Southeast Asia, the history of this place would have been completely different mm -hmm. if, if it hadn't been for the case that Europeans decided that they like the taste of many of the foodstuffs that were here, be it pepper, mace, mm -hmm. nutmeg. And the whole world is upended because people want to taste, have the, own that taste. Um, so uh, I'm just wondering with you guys, uh, have you had a, well, what's your experience? What, what's your relationship to your sense of taste, Matt? I don't know. I mean, it's one of, it's one of those weird things that like you said you don't really think about it until it's gone and i when i've had covid i haven't lost my sense of taste completely but it did dull the last time i had it to the point that i ended up eating some food that was off um because i couldn't taste that it wasn't that it wasn't there um but yeah to the to that that point about um how important taste was maybe to to even colonialism you know you start to think would the world have been a very different place if in england people hadn't existed on turnips for 2000 years if they'd had a bit more variety in their diet than turnips and sweets Absolutely. Absolutely. would the british have actually bothered to go out into the rest mm. of the world uh, and actually you know form this giant empire yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, speaking of which, uh, the British Empire, Matt, you grew up in England. Uh, not that you're a. Uh, no, but you grew up in England and then you moved to Malaysia. And Asia, Malaysia, you know, powerful taste that you, I'm certain, had never tasted and experienced growing up. What, what, oh, absolutely. Experience in that. I mean, did you just go, oh, this is disgusting. This is terrifying. I'm so scared. Or, or No, not at all. I mean, it was, um, it was just you know, an endless discovery for the, the first few years that you're here, finding things that, uh, that you haven't tried before, finding things that you like, actually having time to go back and eat the things that you like, because there's always uh, new things to, to discover. And also because I grew up in a, a, you know, a very small rural part of the, the UK where, you know, probably until I was in my mid to late teens i'd never experienced spaghetti that didn't come in tomato sauce you know it, you know in terms of culinary diversity it was all chips. frozen chips 
out of a out of a packet you know not to um denigrate my my mum's cooking or anything <laughs> anything like that but it just wasn't a culture of diversity when it came to, to food so yeah when I got to uh university when I lived in London I mean in in London was where I I discovered uh sort of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern food which is still my favorite food to to this to this day um and again that's all about tastes and different textures and you know a little bit of this and a little bit of little bit of that so yeah yeah, and and Kajin, what about you? Are you are you uh, a? I'm a huge foodie. I'm I, I love food. I mean, I I I did a lot of history of food. Um, when I when I was in university, and and actually, um, you know, something I was thinking. two particular things I was thinking of. Um, as you were talking about your sense of taste and how taste has dictated so much of our history. Um, the first of which is that you know, but so like so much of this taste, even the kind of quest for pepper um it's so social um you know like lobsters used to be so abundant that they it was prison food in america mm. um turtle soup used to be an abundant food and in the uk um innards um offal used to be such a staple and and you know now, nowadays uh, very few people have offal um and you know in the in the roman empire the main source of that, you know, like umami is now talked about as a kind of mm. Japanese kind of concept. But, you know, in, in the Roman Empire, the main source of umami of, of that salty flavor was garum, which was a sauce made from fermented fish in it. And that was the staple kind of fish sauce. So which, in many which sounds ways, a lot like Thai fish sauce. I, 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 no, exactly. I mean, oh, you look at the his, history of Worcester sauce, right? Mm. Which is voodoo. <laughs> Yes, yes, it is. Um, yeah, yeah, fish yeah. sauce, essentially. I mean, this, and the second thing I was just thinking about as you were talking about losing your sense of taste and how you thought it was horrible is that, and then Matt, you're probably very familiar with this, is that, you know, in the early 2010s, and I think still there's still adherence to this now, there was a whole movement in Sil Silicon Valley um, sparked by Soylent in particular. <laughs> Um, and I actually went on soy, a soy, pure Soylent diet for not three Soylent, months. Not Soylent, by the way. Soy, surely. Yeah, Soylent. Soylent is, so, Soylent is, is boiled down humans from a movie. No, yeah. Ah. I mean, soy, Soylent, Soylent Green is, but Soylent was a, a, a techie product that came out in the, the noughties that was uh, basically all the nutrition you needed in, yes. in this Oh. Kind of shake, so yeah, they, and it they was took the name tasteless. The I mean, yeah. I mean, it was a particular, but it's very bland, not not offensive at all. Um, and, and and there was like a whole bunch of Silicon Valley people I, and techies, or I guess myself included, that was like, this is the future of food because it's more environmentally friendly. It has all your nutrients, perfectly kind of measured scientifically in a bottle, and. <laughs> you save so much time, you know, optimization, you know, a tech bro needs to do his meditation in the morning and then go off and, yeah. uh, you know, lay off 10% of the workforce. Well, what's the point though? What's the point though? But I, I just want to conclude then by saying uh, one of the things with the, with the French empire, for instance, the French empire had trouble finding people to go and people its empire to administer mm. it because they didn't want to leave France. <laughs> um, unlike the British because in France, they really love their own food. <laughs> and uh, Italians, for instance, I mean, they they just own, they'll only eat Italian food. Mm. Um, so hence, you don't really get empires from countries 
that have good food because why would they go anywhere? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but meanwhile, the, the food here, um, every community and culture here, I mean, it, it, they've taken from everywhere. Mm. And uh, But one thing is that uh, Asian food does not photograph well. It can taste fantastic, mm. but it doesn't look good. If you look at the Instagramming of food, it needs to be really worked on to try to make it look palatable. Although to my eye, if I see rundung, I think, oh my God, that's, that looks delicious mm. because I can read it. But actually, it's just a brown lump. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, my sense of taste is coming back, thank goodness. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to taste rundung again one day. So, uh, but in a moment, we will be moving on to um, de-influencing here on A Bit of Culture on BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, Matt Armitage, and Onkar Jin. And now, Matt, uh, you are a de-influencer. Well, it's not, I am a de-influencer. It's, am I a de-influencer? And what is a de-influencer? So this is uh, apparently one of the latest uh, trends on social media. This is essentially um, people, users who uh, either attack uh, influencers who shill for brands, or they attack the brands and the products that are being promoted by influencers online. So some people are seeing this as kind of an economic bellwether. It's kind of a reaction to the kind of A-list lifestyle that's been promoted on uh, on social media channels for the the last sort of 10 years or so. And it's saying that, you know, we can can find better value or products that um, are equivalent for a lot less money. So it's saying, you know, why shell out, you know, $500 for this brand of headphones or $1,000 for this skin cream when there's there's something else that that does that. Um, but I guess where it sort of applies to, to me is because in the, in the shows I do, I try and separate the reality from the, the hype around technology and cultural trends. Um, and I don't think anyone would describe me as an influencer, certainly in that social media sense, because, you know, I, I don't use what little platform I have to, to sell products or things. In fact, um, people do sometimes come and ask me how much I charge for, uh, brand endorsements. And I have to explain that, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you know, for usually tech related, but you know, I have to explain to people that I I can't get on board with their rather uh, dubious crypto scheme, and I'm not going to put out a series oh. of messages uh, mm. promoting promoting that kind of thing. But it made me think about this idea of a de influencer. You know, is it a tautology? Can you actually be mm. a de influencer? Because surely by promoting alternative products you're just being an influencer, just a different kind of influencer. And of course, we live in this kind of age where where the algorithms are kind of gamed by people who have very controversial or strong opinions. So again, is this just a way of sort of jumping on board the kind of current sort of cost of living and credit squeeze? And riding a new wave of influencers, which is kind of undermining that that kind of original. But, but hold on, just, just to be clear, as I understood it, though, that 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 the trend is for people saying, not just 
buy this alternative product, but don't buy anything. No, that that's the thing. You see, that that's what you would think a de-influencer would be. It would be somebody who's telling you not to consume, not to, to partake of conspicuous consumption. But it isn't. It's actually just somebody saying, oh, rather than buying this $500 pair of headphones, buy this $50 pair of headphones. Mm. They're 90% the same. So that's why that's why I was saying that in this sense, it it seems to me that de-influencer is kind of a tautology because mm. really they're just doing what the other people are doing. They're just saying, hey, we can do this in a more budget-friendly uh, way. Well, uh, Kajin, you, you you are a consultant, so you are an influencer by, <laughs> by trade. Um, and uh, so, I don't know. I mean, how, how do you feel about this? No, I mean, I, I totally agree because, I mean, it, it comes back to this, um, you know, the kind of favorite um, line by Audrey Lord, which is the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And ultimately, influencers all play this game. And in fact, is it perhaps, I mean, they are taking on this veneer of let me help you make a better decision by recommending this alternative thing. But really what they're do is, doing is co-opting the language of honesty and um, helping you save money uh, to promote another product that, that they are probably also sponsored for. But you're so cynical. I mean, you know, maybe they're doing it with the kindness of their hearts. They're saying this is genuinely cheaper and genuinely just as yeah. good. But, but you know, I mean, you, you see this all the time in um, direct-to-consumer sales. I mean, that's how the whole direct-to-consumer industry popped up, which was, oh, you know, all these showrooms, they are fleecing you for your money because they have all these high costs of running a showroom and middlemen. Let me, you know, cut the middleman and I will sell you the same product for 50% off direct to you. And that's behind this whole new wave of consumerism. Okay, I'm going to um, take a less cynical line here. <laughs> in that in that I um I've noticed that on the internet and even on on things like Netflix now as well that there's um a, a push to make programs uh, made by people on on how to how to handle your money. Um and it's aimed at young people is teaching them about your finances. Now I really wish that I'd had that mm. when, when I was growing up. I didn't have that, um, and it's, it's it's been a mystery and a minefield to me. But um, and I and I think that if we put the things that Matt's talking about, this de-influence, we put it put it into that kind of package, that there is a movement to to teach young people how to be mindful about their their money. Um, then that's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, I I. I agree with you to a point. I'm just wondering whether the de-influencers sit in that same content bucket that you're talking about. Because yes, I, I do see that as well. I think there is um, much more of a, a sense of awareness and consciousness. But I'm wondering whether the de-influencers sit within that trend or whether they've just seen that the the kind of... Uh, the market for influencers is on the wane and they're taking a different approach because I think there's also a generational aspect here as well. When you look at influencers, you're looking at a much more millennial mm. uh, kind of market generationally. When you look at the the market you're talking about, it's much more kind of Gen Z. So I would expect to see 
less of the consumption-based content coming from the Gen Zers, whereas it's kind of the, the the latter end of the millennials who are jumping on the de-influencer thing because they're trying to make their way in the same industry, but they're just kind of flipping the script a little bit. Hmm. So we should crush them. Uh, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's a, a, a case of uh, of crushing anyone, but I think it comes back to the 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 point that um you made before Kajin about honesty how do we actually find because you know when you go to youtube it's full of videos that say honest review mm. and then isn't at the it? top it'll say yeah you can you just just no, search, but, but then, isn't it yeah. it says honest review it, it says be. honest review but then <laughs> you'll see the little box that says paid promotion yeah. and so it's becoming more and more difficult to find mm. this kind of honest reviews and i think you know, it's not part of the, the topic for today, but that's also part of um, what chips away at the credibility of institutions as well, because I think people are just not used to being able to trust anything at all. They automatically assume that everyone who broadcasts content or messages at them is lying. Yeah, but we, I mean, I'm I'm of the age where I grew up, you know, like BBC or something. It's like, I would, okay, this is, this is an honest um trustworthy why would they lie and uh, perhaps there was too much trust um and uh i mean part of what you're talking about is is people having to learn how to negotiate the for themselves the, mm -hmm. the what is honest and what is not mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if we're succeeding though old people fail old people fail all the time They're oh always... no of, of course and i think uh, again that that again sort of off topic from where we are but um that's part of the thing of technology moving much more than uh, much faster than social norms mm -hmm. it takes society a long time to catch up with what the the technology is doing so we're already sort of 10 years behind the norms of behavior we need for the technology that we have now um and we're not really working on the next jumps of that into the metaverse or whatever which will require another set of standards and norms of behavior that we're not yet prepared for i, I Kajin, are you prepared for it though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think um no one's prepared for it really. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because everything is always kind of co-opted and it's also fluid. You know, today, um, especially I think um TikTok is still about virality, right? So, so a lot of the influencers they make very controversial, like, oh, this thing that everyone's talking about actually is a terrible product because it gets gets them the engagement, it's controversial, it goes viral. But on, I think on other kind of platforms like YouTube, what we're seeing is that subscriber accounts and long-term subscriber with engagements that are willing to watch through like, you know, 40-minute videos instead of three-minute videos is what is fueling YouTube um, revenues. And so the game there that they are playing is, oh, I'm going to be super critical. I'm going to be present myself as the most honest person. and and I'm not going to hard sell them on anything, right? I'm just going to be your guy that is really, I don't take any sponsorships at all, for example, they might say. And that's really part of the game they're playing. So I think what needs to happen is that we have to be aware of the game, of how those revenue structures and incentives are put in place so that we can understand what the, you know, why they're playing at a certain way. That doesn't mean there's no kind of sincerity and no kind of truth at all, but Everything must come with caveats, I think.
oh god i'm just i'm exhausted just <laughs> the, the responsibility that to, I, no i mean if it says our honest review it's an honest review but <laughs> but i i guess also we're talking about our own particular slice of the internet world but i mean the china china market is its own beast as well there's a i mean it's 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 um influencer heaven really mm. uh livelihoods some of your livelihoods are being made there but I, I think that's i think it's sort of no different outside china either i mean it's just the fact that they're fractured systems so you have the the kind of reflection of each other but the the culture that goes along with it has sort of developed along sort of divergent divergent parts uh, and of course because china has this much more uh, kind of integrated technology system you see those influencers uh dominating platforms that they wouldn't be able to outside outside china simply because we don't have that sense of uh, structure uh, for those communication channels yet i don't know in my day we used to write letters and, I know, and and then throw them in the bin. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but or one of them might arrive a hundred years later. That 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 to me is you know anyway. So we move on though to the final part of the show recommendations. We recommend something that might we think might be of interest, and Onkar Jin will go first. Yes, I'm going to recommend a book. It's called Kingdom of Characters. Uh, it's by a Yale professor called Jing Su, uh, and it's basically about the language revolution that modernized China. Really, I mean, you know. Uh, it's really about how the Chinese language came to be, how Mandarin came to be the national language, how, you know, in, and even in the kind of computer age, how input codes for Chinese characters in the technology age was, was standardized. And I think it's, it's a wonderful human kind of history of the characters, the kind of forces at play that made China what it is today. And um, I think aside from this book, uh, what Professor Jing Su is also doing is she she's working with um, kind of the Council for Foreign Relations and a lot of these um, foreign policy people um, to kind of talk about, let's try to understand China as not a monolithic block that is just a, a kind of... Uh, default enemy slash rival and let's try to understand china more in depth culturally as well as socially and i think this book is is an incredible demonstration of that kind of understanding so this is a recent history of language yes it just came out last year 2022 i mean it doesn't um, go back to <clears throat> 2000 years ago it's it's looking at uh how how it's evolving right now Yes, yes. It's it's about how um you know the na the nationalization of language, the standardization of I mean what we call Chinese language today is not at all what was Chinese. I mean, most of like the Song Dynasty poets, they were actually speaking and writing in Cantonese or Hokkien, um right, right. not Mandarin. I well I, I was in China and I I was excited to be able to watch the Cantonese news. Mm. But it was all in Mandarin. I mean, it, it depends on what part. There are some. There are still a lot of regional television I don't know, networks I think, I, that that do no, the dialect. Really, I think they've they've made a real point to crush all <laughs> the dialects, haven't they? I, actually, I just read a. Um, it's it's a fantasy novel called um, Babel, 
uh, or The Necessity of Violence by a, a writer called um, R.F. Kuang. And it's actually about um, the power of the Chinese language. It's basically um, the British Empire is sustained by magic based on words. And the magic of most European words has been used up. So the British Empire starts to essentially mine um, China for for its language. Um, so it's about this, this kind of character of Robin Swift, who's, uh, who's Chinese, he's forced to take a British name and uh, become member of uh, a member of this society that creates this, this magic power. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's a fantastic book, because it really does explore the, the kind of um, uh, the etymology and, and uh, of the, the roots and derivations of the language, um, but also just putting it into this context of the exploitation of, mm. of colonial powers. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Got two two uh, recommendations. The price one there. So, uh, Kajin, what, what what is your one again? Uh, Kingdom of Characters by Jing Su. Kingdom of Characters by Jing Su. And and Matt, your uh, I I'm, I'm stretching my head around trying to find it. Uh, I read a book, um, Doctor. Sorrel and Mr. About magic in England. In oh, yes. Um, Mr. Sorrel and Dr. Strange. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah something like that. Oh, and Jonathan that, yeah. Strange. Jonathan, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 yeah, that kind of thing. Um, okay, so my recommendation is the music of Mr. Burt Bacharach, um, hmm. uh, the fantastic songwriter, American songwriter, who died very recently, just last week. Uh, at the age of 93, I think. And he just wrote the most wonderful songs. So, uh, most famous would be like Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head and uh, uh, Trains and Boats and Planes and uh, so yeah. many. What the world what, needs now. What the world needs now. And he's probably most associated with uh, the singer Dionne Warwick. Um, and he, just really such a great songwriter. And uh, I just uh, would suggest you check out his music especially by the original artist because he wrote for many different people but i mean other people have come along he himself sang his songs very affectingly mm. so uh so whilst whilst the young people in the 60s were sort of like getting all excited about the likes of the beatles and the stones the the older people were listening to bert Bacharach. <laughs> so it's that kind of music very yeah. cool very cool stuff in pan alley uh yeah he's really great great so, uh, Matt, what is your? Um, mine is uh, a TV show, as it so often is when I come on this show. Uh, it's The Last of Us, which is currently on uh, HBO. It's, uh, as pretty much everything I recommend is, it's a post-apocalyptic show. Um, yes, there are zombies, but this is a parasitic fungi that takes people over and turns them into zombies, uh, similar to the one that affects ants and controls ants. Now, it's developed from a video game. Um, again, none of this is sounding good at the moment. Zombies, mushrooms, <laughs> and video games. But the, the genius of the show is the way that it treats the core story, which stars Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. It treats the core story kind of as a thread for exploring the backstories of these peripheral characters and going into great depth to do it. Um, because often when you get these shows that are sort of based around vignettes those kind of plots threading them to together are very kind of forced and it, it doesn't sit together very, very well um with 
The Last of Us, you know, you you just sit back and you're happy to immerse yourself in it. Um, the third episode, a long, long time uh, starring Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett as uh, star-crossed lovers. It's got to be one of the most moving pieces of TV that I've seen in years, um, possibly as good even as the, the the Pine Barrens episode of The Sopranos, uh, which is the one where the main characters uh, get lost in a, a snowy woodland uh, episode. It's directed by Steve Buscemi um, after a, a failed murder. So not often I recommend shows that are still in the middle of their, their arc, but The Last of Us is just something completely new, I think, for for certainly for sort of Western TV in the last sort of 10, 15 years. Kajin, you, you are nodding away very enthusiastically. It's, it's brilliant. It's, it's brilliant. I, I, I endorse everything Matt said times two. It's, it's a brilliant show. I think, um, you know, Matt, uh, talking about how they've treated the tread of the video game, uh, a huge fan of the video game as well. Um, but I, I think what I also really love is the kind of um, first five minutes or so of the episode where they kind of bring us out onto the, say, the larger context or history of how this cordyceps fungus came to end the world. Mm. And there are some brilliant moments, like there's a second episode part where they bring in this incredible Indonesian actress and she does, she's so effective. And in just five minutes, she really... I think sets up the stakes and the kind of global emotions that are kind of roiling in this in in, in the background and the backdrop of the show. You know, pri- prior to losing my sense of taste, I also I also sent, uh, lost my sense of being prepared to be scared whilst watching things. I, I mean, I kind of don't. I don't know uh, it's it's not really a, it's not really yeah, a it's horror. Not scary, yeah, no. No, no, it's it's not. No. There's no jump scares or anything. Nah, but very tense though. I should imagine, you know, like all the fungus. A, li- a, li- a fungus little bit, but head. it's don't move. Kind of. No, no, it's much more about the the kind of human tragedy mm-hmm. kind of aspect of it. And again, just these kind this kind of the stories are all about picking up the pieces. They're not they're not about the the kind of horrors of living in this you know okay. post whatever society, okay. um, and the. Because again, you can you can hear the people who are infected with the cordyceps. So the it's it's very much a backdrop rather than a kind of walking dead thing where they're in your face all the time. I mean, you can go through whole episodes where you basically don't see any of the the infected at all. It's just simply a palette that the show is kind of painted on. Okay, I cannot imagine what the video game must be. <laughs> How do you play a game about that? I have no idea. Um, okay, so that's The Last of Us, which you've kind of persuaded me I might I might try. It's on HBO. Yeah. yeah. Even, oh. even if you don't want to go for the whole series, just watch episode three. Would that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Because it, 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 is, it just takes characters that haven't been introduced before and devotes most of the episode to their backstory okay well i'm going to go and uh put on a velvet smoking jacket and listen, <laughs> uh, listen to the sounds of mr burt Bacharach. um while you watch mushroom zombies <laughs> yeah yeah that's 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 what i'm gonna do so um well that brings us to the end of this week's show the last of us and uh which it didn't this is not the last of us but uh 
I'd like to thank our two consultants of the week. Uh, Onkar Jin, thank you. Thank you. And Matt Armitage. Always a pleasure. A pleasure to have you here. And uh, myself, Cam Raslan. And please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.